Good morning and welcome to Sierra uh, Week conversation presented by IHS Market. Uh, and this morning I will be talking about the global oil market outlook for the next 10 years. Uh, and I'm joined by uh, Ellen Curry, uh, Chief Economist at ConocoPhillips, Spencer Dale, Group Chief Economist uh, at BP, Dr. Uh, Ayad al Kahtani, uh, Director of Research at OPEC, and uh, Jim Burkhart, who heads uh, uh, IHS market, uh, oil market, and mobility uh, uh, research. So thank you all for joining us today. Uh, and uh, this is gonna dream panel here to discuss what's gonna be happening uh, in the oil market. Uh, it's always a fun topic to have, but uh, today really, uh, I think uh, I would not have any other four panelists uh, uh, than uh, the one we have. Uh, I would like to talk uh, first with Spencer, actually. Uh, obviously, there have been a lot of discussion this year about what's uh, the future of demand post-COVID for oil market. Uh, and I wanted to uh, have a view from, uh, from you and uh, the scenarios that BP put out uh, this summer about uh, how the men would look like. Uh, thank you, Roger. And I think the, the truthful answer is uh, we don't know. Uh, we know all of the scenarios we looked at in the energy outlook will be wrong. And the role of those outlooks isn't to predict the future, but to get, rather to get a better a sense about the range of uncertainty that we face. And I think uh, when we think about oil demand over the next uh, 10 years, I think in terms of that range of uncertainty on, in, on one side, I think we see oil demand recovering um, as the pandemic is brought under control and the vaccine is, uh, is, um, uh, is distributed widely around the world. Oil demand going back above its pre-COVID levels, but not rising materially above that level, sort of um, broadly flatlining, gradual growth, but broadly flatlining over the next 10 years. And then in other scenarios, the impact of, of COVID far more pronounced, such that although you get a recovery in oil demand from current levels, it never gets back to its pre-COVID levels. And you see a gradual decline of up to about 10 million barrels a day um, over the next 10 years. So what we are thinking about when we're thinking about that range of uncertainty is that sort of code of uncertainty for oil demand over the next 10 or 15 years. Thank you, Spencer. Um, the demand issue obviously also really impact how we're going to be looking at investment and how much oil we would need over the next 10 years to come online. So how those scenarios in a way define that supply environment? Yeah, and I think that it's a key point, Roger, because I think many people sometimes when they hear sort of phrases like oil demand peaking, they sort of slip uh, their, their derivative and somehow think somehow oil demand falls away very rapidly. Under all the scenarios, both that we think about in BP, and I must admit that I've seen around the world, even if oil demand does peak in the near future and starts to decline, the pace of that decline in demand is likely to be very slow relative to the natural base decline we see in production. So under all the scenarios that we are envisaging in BP, the world needs trillions of dollars of, of investment in new oil production over the next 10 or 15 years. And, and so I think one sort of constant under all of those is the need to see very substantial levels of investment. Oil continues to play a major central role in the global energy system under all those scenarios. And in order to support that, you need huge levels of investment, trillions of dollars of investment over the next 10 years in order to ensure uh, uh, adequate supplies of oil going forward. Thank you. Uh, we'll come back to that uh, supply issue, but I would like uh, 
to have uh, Ellen uh, giving uh, to give us a little bit uh, the view from ConocoPhillips, both on that demand outlook and uh, the um, the perception of a plateau or a slowly rise only of demand over the next ten years, and then we'll come back to to supply issues. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Roger. I I, I would actually echo almost every every point that that Spencer was making in in regard to. Uh, how how demand will recover from from COVID, as as Spencer put very eloquently, we we truly don't know. There's such there, there's so many factors that are in play today that we we can't we can't know exactly where they will uh, fall out in the next three to five years or ten years. Um, but what is important is that we do have a range of scenarios. We we have scenarios in house in ConocoPhillips as well. Where, where we we do have cases that we're in demand uh, re recovers and grows above its prior 100 million barrel a day level, uh, but then does does start to plateau and, and decline eventually in the long term. And then on the, the other side of that, we do have cases uh, where where demand doesn't doesn't fully recover, but it does plateau and the world does continue to need oil uh, as well as natural gas. But in this case, oil oil is needed for a very long time. You can't just turn it off. There's too much of the global economy is dependent on oil and oil products. Uh, so it is it is needed for a long time. And as a, as a byproduct, a lot of investment, uh, trillions of dollars are needed to be invested in the upstream to, to be able to deliver on the world's energy needs. Well, that's going to be the challenge, correct? Because depending how long it takes for oil demand and prices to recover, how much capital will be available for these investments become a, a critical uh, uh, issue. And there have been a number of price forecasts, especially from uh, you know from uh, the investment banks, uh, talking about a, a structural tightening or even a super cycle coming in because of this lack of investment. I think it depends a lot on how dynamic the demand is, obviously, in the next five years to be able to have that type of tightening. So I wanted to uh, ask uh, Dr. Al-Kahtani, how does OPEC seize demand? And what are your main base case scenario for where demand is 10 years from now? Well, uh, thank you, uh, uh, Roger, and thank you uh, for the IHS uh, Sarah Week uh, conversation for uh, giving us uh, all the privilege to be with you today and share with you some of the insight, probably on the short term, but uh, we'll, uh, you pinpointed 2030, uh, uh, that's the number that you want to discuss, but I just wanted to uh, maybe extract some of the key messages and some of the numbers that we have shared already with the public domain uh, last month in the release of our World Oil Outlook uh, 2045. Uh, but uh, before probably we uh, dwell on that, I just uh, wanted to uh, stress on the point of the uncertainty mentioned by my colleagues here, uh, which is uh, definitely uh, something that will uh, encompass that everything that we do in the future. Not very long time ago, earlier this year, we were uh, expecting the, the, the global economy to uh, grow very healthy uh, this year. Back in January, uh, monthly oil market report, we were forecasting north of 3% growth for the whole year an upward revision from the month before, and we were thinking that the demand would grow 1.1 million barrels per day, very much in line with what our peers, uh, colleagues uh, in various agencies and institutions were thinking. But uh, little we knew about what was coming our way in February, everything is uh, changed, uh, literally uh, south significantly. Uh, now we uh, expect this year to witness an economic contraction of uh, more than 4.3% uh, 4, uh, 4 
along with uh, an oil contraction, oil demand contraction by uh, almost uh, 10 million barrels uh, per day. The COVID-19 turned our world upside down. This is the uncertainty that within uh, a few months we were uh, facing, let alone something that you're talking about 10 years uh, time horizon. But I'll try my best uh, on behalf of the OPEC Secretariat team to share with you as much as we best can come up with in the uh, next uh, uh, decade or so. Now, uh, for the uh, 2030, we uh, uh, hope that things will start uh, coming back uh, out of the hall uh, next, uh, next year. We expect next year to see a positive economic growth of 4.4%. And with that, uh, an, an oil demand back to the positive territory north of uh, 6 million barrels per day. We hope this will pull us gradually out of the uh, COVID-19 uh, big hole that we dug, uh, that we were thrown into uh, with that demand and economic growth to continue uh, uh, growing at healthy levels to 2030 and then beyond to 2045. And if you allow me just very quickly to share with you some of the numbers that we uh, see by 2030, we hope that the global economy will grow uh, by another $43 uh, trillion. That's reaching uh, around 164. That's uh, almost a 35% increase from the 2019 level. That economic growth will be uh, uh, catered or supported by another 11% growth in population by uh, almost 800 or a little bit more than 800 million people. That will require an energy demand of uh, a growth of more than 30 million uh, barrel of oil equivalent, which is another 11% above and beyond what we have seen in 2019. Just zooming into the oil component of that, we uh, hope, uh, or at least in the base case, we uh, see the demand of oil growing by another 7.5 million barrels per day. That's 8% uh, growth above the 2000. Uh, 19 level of almost 100 million. So we see a little bit of space uh, uh, to uh, to catch up some of the lost uh, demand territories for next year, thanks uh, by large to the uh, market stabilization effort that the uh, OPEC and OPEC Plus have uh, brought to the market, let alone the uh, very constructive support role that we've seen outside OPEC. And uh, April G20 is not far. I think the outcome of the collective global effort has uh, has able the markets to start stabilizing, registering back growth into the 2021 and beyond reaching the 7.5 growth by 2030. Uh, and I can uh, dwell into 2040. Well, uh, no, no, let's, uh, let, I wanted to ask uh, uh, Jim here. Um, so what are the key driver of demand since you had both uh, crude oil market and mobility? And I wanted to start to go uh, into there is how much these structural changes we're seeing on demand, mobility in particular, uh, and potential change of behavior after COVID impact that view over 10 years. And is this one of the reasons we have a bigger range, if you want, of uncertainty going forward? Right, and there's always a big range of uncertainty. And I think we just recognize that now because of what we've just all experienced. And when it comes to the long-term demand, I'll talk about cars in just a second, uh, Roger, but, uh, if we look back in history, there's been two negative demand shocks uh, you know, in the last couple of decades. One was in the early 1980s and then in 2008, 2009 because of the financial crisis. One was caused by price, one was caused by uh, economic contraction. Uh, this time around, it's caused by the sharp decline in um, 
oil demand is caused by a pandemic, which then led to a sharp contraction. But I think what history shows is when you have a big hit to demand like this, it does lower long-term demand. And our view is, even in our base case, which does show a recovery, demand out to 2030 is about 4 million barrels per day less than we had it before the pandemic. Now, there's some conflicting forces here. One is, uh, you know, people are uh, using more cars as opposed to mass transit right now. The flip side of that is uh, a lot of people aren't commuting into the office. But one really key trend that um, gets a lot of attention, and as well it should, and that is this, uh, many jurisdictions are looking at um, more aggressive policies to to ban internal combustion engines, to ban this new sale of oil-powered cars. Now, whether the, how realistic those are, whether the timing that's been announced by some, like California in September said 2035, they want to ban new sales, that uh, remains to be seen as a massive supply chain that still needs to be uh, built, built out on that. But we are seeing two trends in mobility. One is uh, ride hailing is really taking a hit because of the pandemic. The flip side of that is electrification aspirations, particularly in a number of uh, jurisdictions around the world, have been increased. And those tend to you know, offset one another in the short term. But in the long term, ride hailing will make a comeback and the electrification push is only going to gain more momentum over time. What I'm gathering from this conversation here on demand is in the next 10 years, we have uncertainty because we are at a pivot point from a structural point of view, and we don't know how much this revolution will impact the evolution of demand on one hand, and the other is the size of the recovery of demand because of the COVID crisis and the potential change for behavior. So we have quite a, a big range of outcome on demand. Uh, however, if you put that picture in the context where the oil market were in the last four years, where we had surplus and management of the market uh, uh, by, by OPEC, uh, I would define the price regime we're in as the, you know, create a ceiling created by the amount of oil, actually the supply coming out of North America in particular. So we're in the supply abundance with a narrative of supply abundance and the beginning of the perception of a demand uh, 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 constraint, uh, both from the technology and now from the economy. In that environment, I would want to, to flip a little bit on the supply side, because if you have a price environment, let's say, which is moderate, uh, how do you bring these trillion dollar of investment into the supply to keep that moderation in prices, even in a demand uh, uh, weakness? Uh, in the sense that oil is a wasting asset, you need to invest every year to stay flat. Uh, obviously, if your growth is limited, uh, it reduces the, the amount of, uh, of capital needed, but still. I would like to start with uh, you, Ellen, here, because the U.S. was such a big uh, element into the price regime we're in. How do you see shale and shale production evolving over the next 10 years into that type of demand uncertainty? We, we have adjusted our, our viewpoint and our uh, the way we're thinking about U.S. US shale growth, uh, Tidal specifically, uh, coming out of this, this downturn this, this year. Is, and part of that is, is not just the demand factors that have changed. It's many of, many of the capital markets uh, elements that, that are also essentially reshaping the, the playing field for, for U.S. producers. Um, 
the I think that the, the key thing, one of the key things to focus on is is that via vis a vis the pressures of the capital markets, uh, ENPs in the U.S., North America are are going to be much more focused on capital discipline and uh, low cost of supply. Uh, those factors that you need to have in play to in order to generate free cash flow and be able to provide returns to to your investors. I think the uh, clearly the the much of the act the, the the activity that that we observed over the last five to ten years is 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 going to to change uh, with respect to the relationship between producers and their their sources of capital. So what that then does is it it limits the 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 growth rate of of U.S. production in the future. I do think that U.S. production will will turn around and grow again uh, in the future. Uh, we're, we're likely to see declines continuing into, into 2021, but once we get beyond that, uh, I think it's likely that U.S. production will turn around and start to grow again, but it's, it's less likely that, that we're going to see the, the, the annual growth rates of, of 1 million barrels a day and higher that, that we did see previously. So it, it comes back to there's, there's, it's not a question of, of the resource under the ground. Uh, what what has changed is now the the above ground factors and the the access to capital that will will limit the rate of growth for for U.S. producers. But we do I do still think that U.S. production will will be that that flexible source source of of global supply. So it can it it can still respond quickly to to price signals. And that that dynamic will will continue to play out in the future. Thank you. So, uh, Spencer, um, to, to continue on that supply issue. So, Ellen, tell us uh, limited growth in uh, in the U.S. in a uh, low to medium price environment. But if prices go above a certain level, I'm paraphrasing you, Ellen. Uh, we can accelerate that growth. So that ability to uh, to turn the dial up in, in case of a, a spike in prices is still there. And the US has still the ability to uh, overwhelm demand if prices go above a certain threshold. Do you agree with that picture? And second, I would like to ask you about the rest of the world of supply. Uh, yes, I sort of very much share Helen's view. I think it's clear that the, the nature of US tight oil is going to change. Business model is going to change. We've seen levels of consolidation will increase. The nature of corporate financing will change. But the idea that sort of US tight oil introduces a sort of a flatness into uh, the supply into supply curve. And so therefore it helps to stabilize markets as demand increases, I think is likely to stay. The question we don't know is What's that? What what are the price trigger points, and and how have they changed? And have they changed fundamentally, or they just change for a period of time until confidence returns, and then they will um, adjust back down again? So I think that's the the issue there. Um, outside of of the rest of outside of U.S. tight oil, I think the issue here is firmly in uh, in terms of the low cost oil producers, and in terms of many of those being uh, OPEC producers, and. And Dr. Apatani will know a lot more about that than, than I do. But in some sense, I think this is an issue for OPEC where they're trying to balance the market. They're trying to increase their market share, but do that in such a way that keeps the market um, in balance. And that may well mean that they 
after the market um, gets back to a more normal level, they may have to tread water for a while, where much of the marginal supply growth is driven by US pipe oil until we start to see some of those moving away from those sweet spots, allowing greater opportunities for, for OPEC to start to increase their market share again. Well, you sidestepped all of the non-OPEC, non-US. I would like to take you back there a little bit. In this environment we're going to be in, uh, that we define, are we seeing a lower activity in the rest of the world, basically, for uh, production? Obviously, exploration is done, but really, uh, where can we see growth outside of uh, US and the uh, low-cost producers? So I think there's some obvious spots that we can see um, material growth going forward. So we see, for example, material growth in, in uh, Brazil over the next few years, and that will be a point, of, uh, a particular point that we would highlight. But I, I think this is the, the general picture is one where in this world of, of muted demand growth, non-OPEC supply outside of the US and some particular areas like Brazil does start to get squeezed by the competition from a combination of US tight oil and, and, and OPEC and OPEC plus um, supplies. Thank you, Spencer. Um, Dr. Al-Kahtani, can you give us a little bit the view here from the low-cost producer, the, the OPEC members in particular, how much investment are expected in the next 10 years and what type of uh, market growth is perceived to be able to be captured by a higher supply? Uh, maybe if, if you uh, allow me just to add on to the uh, previous point I uh, talked about the, the demand, uh, we talked quite uh, heavily on the uncertainty and I uh, agree with my colleagues here in the panel that uncertainty will be, uh, will be uh, definitely huge going forward, uh, whether it relates to the exact timing, when do we get the vaccine in the very, very short term, now we're talking months as opposed to years, but when we make it out of that uh, slump, uh, then the uh, uncertainty uh, changes gears and becomes more around the technology breakthroughs and, and the policies. Uh, we've seen uh, the G20 uh, summit uh, outcome uh, declaration last night, uh, maybe uh, adopting, endorsing the, the circular carbon economy, opening the door for a lot of producers, a lot of energy uh, initiatives and policies. Uh, definitely a policy and technology breakthroughs will be will be significant uncertainties going forward. But something one one thing for sure that we all know that we need to grow and uh, we are making progress, uh, making it out of this uh, COVID uh, repercussions into a medium term strong growth. My colleagues here, they've agreed on strong oil growth, whether it's uh, 5 million or 7 million, at least we are, we are uh, witnessing a, a, a demand growth. And, uh, and that is in order to facilitate for the economic growth. If we are to see the huge stimulus package north of $12 trillion being uh, injected into the global economy, definitely that will create a lot of growth and we will need energy to, uh, to, to grow that front. Now, uh, on the structural change mentioned by my colleagues here, indeed, we see a structural change because of the, the COVID, not only on the demand side, whereby we see uh, a, an erosion of uh, a million to two million barrels per day of absolute demand levels, uh, whether we are talking 2030 or 2045, but definitely it, it imposes a structural change in the demand story as well on the supply. Now, on the supply uh, side, uh, your question, Roger, we expect the... Uh, supply of the U.S. shale to start coming back into, into the market as prices uh, improve. Again, balancing the market remains to be a collective responsibility and effort, not only at OPIC. You uh, probably uh, mentioned that OPIC balances the market. It is OPIC uh, plus the uh, 
members into the Declaration of Cooperation, as well as uh, outside the DOC, Declaration of Cooperation. We've seen Norway, we've seen the U.S. contributing to that collective effort, and it's been very successful. Uh, the G20 at, uh, at its level recognized uh, this global effort to re reinstate the stabilization into the market. Now, uh, for the, the supply, we, uh, I mentioned earlier that we expect the oil to uh, grow by around 7.5 million barrels between now and 2030. And to match that, we expect the uh, non-OPEC liquid supply to increase by uh, uh, about 6.5 million barrels per day. As for the production of OPEC, as depicted uh, in our world oil outlook, and I invite you all to, to read through it, is that we expect uh, the uh, OPEC uh, production uh, liquid production to uh, uh, probably slightly drop in the short term. Uh, it was at 33.8 in 2019. We uh, think it will be around 33 million barrels per day by 2025 before it catches up the, uh, the, the, the wave to fill in the gap left by the plateauing, if not stagnating, supply outside uh, uh, OPEC member countries. We see the U.S. gradually uh, uh, maybe uh, picking up uh, growth in the medium term. Uh, and then uh, uh, apart from the U.S. and few other countries, uh, you, uh, we talked about uh, Brazil, but uh, we have uh, Canada, Qatar, Kazakhstan, as well as uh, Guyana, probably demonstrating growth between 2025 and 2030. And uh, once they, uh, they, they peak at around uh, 72 million and they start declining, OPEC picks up the, the slack uh, increasing its uh, total liquid production to around 36 million barrels per day by 2030. Definitely, this will come at a hefty cost of investment. We talked about the price tag of north of $12 trillion by 2045. If we zoom into the 2030, we would need around $6 trillion uh, to be invested in the, in the oil, upstream, midstream, and downstream. This is a significant... Uh, uh, tag uh, price uh, to, to put pipe in the ground and make sure that we avoid uh, spikes. You talked about super cycles uh, earlier, uh, Roger. It's something that OPEC and uh, its member countries, as well as uh, uh, their excellencies, have been warning around uh, the, the lack of investment. We've seen investment contracting significantly by around 24, 25% back in 15, 16. We've seen it plunging by uh, uh, around 30% this year. Uh, this will have its uh, consequences if we uh, do not lay down the investment to facilitate for that demand growth when it materializes uh, the next year and the years uh, beyond. So uh, definitely, we will have to get back to the 300 to $400 billion investment per year to avoid any uh, price hikes that may not be very healthy to the market participants, be it uh, producers, consumers, uh, or, or, or investors. Thank you, uh, I, uh, Jim. Uh, we have a supply forecast, which also uh, I think shows that toward the end of uh, that the period we're talking about here, we're going to see a material increase uh, from the uh, uh, large resource holders in OPEC and OPEC Plus. Uh, how do you look at this price and, uh, environment, and why do we have that concentration of growth happening in these countries in the in the medium term? Well, one uh, aspect of global oil supply, uh, if you look at uh, the big picture, you go back 50 years, what were the major sources of production 50 years ago? Uh, the Middle East, uh, Eurasia, Russia, and North America. Today, it's those three regions. And we think 50 years from now, 
those three regions will remain pillars of supply. So first of all, your you know a supply outlook is based on you know where you know where are the resources where you think they will be uh, uh, produced. So I think that's a natural evolution of a long-term supply outlook. Now there are surprises. You know the U.S. tight oil uh, story in the 2010s. You know no one was looking at that in 2005. And if you have, if we were to have a period of high prices again, we'd have another period of of, of discovery and innovation. Now setting that aside, setting aside the potential for a, you know a number of years of, of high prices, it's simply where the where the resources are. And in terms of the the cost structure, there is what we would call a large middle class in terms of uh, global oil supply costs. When we look at our the cost structure today, and it's come down some not nearly as much as it did in 2015, 2016, but costs have come down some. And um, when we look at uh, even, even a demand outlook where you have uh, demand back up to pre-COVID levels by 2023 and then modestly growing after that, uh, most of um, uh, you need about $60 oil in real terms, in our view, to satisfy that, that demand. So a lot of that's going to come from the Middle East. We'll still be producing a lot of oil in the Middle East in 50 years, same in Russia and, and the U.S. But that broad middle class, $60 and below, whether it's Brazil, uh, Guyana, or a number of other places, uh, that uh, points to a large resource base that can be, that where supply can come on at uh, yeah. moderate prices. Yeah, well, I want to stay a little bit uh, on that capital constraint, in particular with our two guests here from, uh, uh, from the companies. Uh, I work mostly with the financial clients of IHS market, and there is this sense that the narrative has really changed between the supply abundance and the demand constraints and the carbon constraint and how that carbon constraint is getting impact is starting to impact capital formation, capital availability for these type of projects. And I want to understand how do you continue to plan and uh, strategize around oil production for the next 10, 20 years, what type of, uh, of uh, uh, input you have to do in the models to keep investment flowing into, uh, uh, into upstream oil. Spencer, would you like to take that first? And, and uh, then Alan, then, uh, that would be our conclusion. So I think from a corporate perspective, um, this is the world of increasing capital discipline. Um, and I think that capital discipline takes many um, different dimensions. The one capital discipline we've always seen is that shareholders will demand uh, a return on, on their investments and be, will return uh, or will demand proof that they're going to get a good return, uh, expected return on their investments. I think another part of that capital discipline is a recognition that the future of oil demand is uncertain. How long oil demand will carry on growing for is far more uncertain now than it ever was if you go back 10, 15 or 20 years or so. Or so. And so therefore, the resilience of the investment of the oil you're invested in becomes increasingly important. Can this oil compete in a world where if oil demand turns out to slow and start to fall more quickly um, than you expect? And so I think the challenges in terms of transparency and uh, to prove that you're only investing in resilient oil. And I think the final component to that is the carbon intensity of the oil you're uh, investing in. Increasingly, the type of, of, of investors that we have invested in, in BP, they care about the return on their investments, but they also care about 
what the impact that those investments have on, on, on the planet and the wider environment. And therefore, um, yes, one can still carry on investing in oil and gas, but you need to make sure that you can demonstrate you're investing in the lowest carbon intensity oil and gas that is possible. So I think any flows of capital is still there, but I think the demands in terms of discipline, transparency, the nature of the investments are, are, are changing relative to what we've seen in the past. Thank you, Spencer, because what you're telling me here in a way that uh, low cost, low carbon producer will move, uh, you know, to, to, to provide the bulk of the growth, the base uh, baseline of the growth, uh, which are a lot of the uh, countries in the, uh, in the Persian Gulf, uh, where we can produce both low cost and, and low carbon, but that the <coughs> marginal balance of the market remain the U.S., and that uh, takes me back to, to, to Helen here, is we need to have the sense that the reformed shale sector probably consolidated, larger company, more capitalized, more attuned to shareholders' uh, need, need to continue to have, though, that ability to dial up or down at a certain price threshold. And that's going to one of the uncertainty that we have. Uh, do, do you see the U.S. capable three, four years down the road to be able within six, 12, 18 months, let's say go from half a million barrel per day gross to a million, a million and a half if needed? I think you, you would have to see the right kind of price signal in order for, for, the US, for US producers to respond in, in that magnitude because, because what the, the, the environment that they're operating in and that they would need to be able to respond within goes back to the notion of do you have low cost of supply and can you, can you produce those barrels in an environmentally responsible and sustainable fashion such that you still have free cash flow to return to, to your investors? Uh, I, I, think, I, I think in the coming years, I'm hopeful that, that we'll, we'll be pleasantly surprised with how the US, US producers collectively uh, step up and respond to the greater requirements around, around environmental responsibility. Uh, I think that as, as Spencer was pointing out, the, the capital market pressures are going to demand greater transparency. So what, what will have to come along with that is uh, sort of uh, the notion of, of raising the floor around uh, sustainable practices in, in uh, the US and, and across North America. Uh, but to, 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 to circle back to your, your direct question, uh, the, in, order to, in order to see U.S. production grow close to a million barrels a day, it's all about do you have, do you have the market environment led by a price signal uh, to, to be able to drive that. Okay, thank you. That's not very, uh, very different than from the uh, environment we had, maybe with different threshold. Uh, uh, Dr. Al-Kahtani, would you, would you like to, to, to tell us how you look at that market and how it's reactive uh, going forward? I just wanted to uh, to uh, add a point to uh, what my uh, colleagues have already mentioned. We've seen the U.S. Uh, shale industry demonstrating uh, its ability to compete. We've uh, seen an efficiency improvement uh, back with the uh, price collapse of the 2014-2015. That we've seen uh, north of uh, uh, almost 40% uh, efficiency improvement, and uh, that is to survive the uh, lower price environment. Uh, remember, we've needed the shale so badly uh, to cater for the growth that we've seen out of the 2008 uh, uh, financial crisis. 
that is to uh, call off the prices and, and offer uh, alternative, probably cheaper uh, sources of supply, catering uh, the markets to uh, uh, finance the economic growth that we've uh, seen back in those years. With the price collapse, we've seen an efficiency improvement. And this year, uh, we are probably are registering uh, uh, positive uh, free cash flows for the first time in several years by uh, uh, the, uh, at least the top 39 uh, uh, shale companies in the U.S. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised that, that due to the, uh, the uh, new uh, skills and we, new ways of reducing costs and improving efficiency, that we would see uh, volumes coming back to the market at a lower price span. So I will not address certain price span, but uh, you talked uh, earlier about the $60. I think that would be uh, a very healthy price environment, uh, but I think the growth could materialize at much lower than that, given the, in, uh, the efficiency that they have realized. Talk in 2030, we uh, believe at uh, the Secretary that the, 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 yeah, the US uh, tight crude could grow by another two and a half million. That is uh, up from the 7.7 .7 that we've seen in 2019. As for the tight uh, oil, including the NGLs, uh, again, the shale gas is uh, another story that we have to keep an eye on. We think that they easily can uh, uh, maybe add north of 4 million uh, barrels back to the market. That is uh, added to the 11.7 we've seen in 2019. Again, we uh, think that with this efficiency improvement, with the improving price environment next year and the years to follow, in light of the demand recovery, we think that uh, that environment would be facilitative to all producers, not only in the, uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, shale, but also in, in, the, in, the, in the Gulf region, whereby we see the low uh, cost of uh, production. I think we are getting back to somehow uh, an environment uh, out of the 2008, uh, getting out of a crisis and uh, requiring all sources of energy uh, to facilitate for the growth that we've witnessed. And if anything, learning from history, which uh, demonstrated not to be very far away, I think we will, uh, we will uh, get back to the OPEC main uh, takeaway conclusions in our WU, which uh, uh, indicated that we will need all sources of energy uh, still dominated by oil, uh, mainly in the transport and the petrochemical sector, but also all sources of energy would be required. We will see some of them growing faster than others, but uh, the picture will not uh, change by a whole lot. And that's because the uh, greener components of the global energy mix will remain to be a smaller portion because they start from a very low base. Back to you, Roger. Thank you, Dr. Al-Kartani. Let me uh, wrap up this discussion here. What we heard today is... Uh, um, a lot of uncertainty on demand, the perception that uh, we're coming close to a plateau or lower growth. But Dr. al Kahdani also remind us that economic growth and population growth uh, might mean that the structural changes that uh, we're expecting might not have such a big impact in the next 10 years on demand. On the supply side, there's clearly capital constraint and the notion that resources will come up from really two sources of low cost uh, oil in the United States as not only low cost, but uh, uh, a quick uh, reactivity to prices uh, after a certain threshold. Same system that we had in the last four or five years. The question is how much shale 3.0 have been tamed by capital. That's an, to a certain degree an uncertainty, but to large is not. We're seeing the restructuring of the, uh, of the US uh, oil sector. And the rest of supply really has to come, it looks like, from the large uh, low cost, low carbon uh, footprint producers uh, and their willingness to put the capital in place, even in a 
a lower price environment to prepare for the future and allow that oil future to continue uh, with us, even if it's a plateau or a, a, a limited growth or a large growth, capital still had to come in, uh, even in prices between, let's say, 50 and 65 to, to give us the future of oil. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for my panelists. That was a great conversation. And I hope we uh, sometime next year at Sierra Week will be uh, uh, next to each other on a, on a panel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much, Ayesha. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.